Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Michael Ossett, who's the director and founder of Strand Property Group. He's a qualified architectural engineer and, of course, a buyer's agent as well. We chat to him about chucking in his cushy job to become a buyer's agent, how he started in property, his buy, renovate and hold strategies. We chat about emerging markets and how to source properties that fit within your portfolio that deliver that growth that point you towards financial freedom. It's a fantastic interview and Without further ado, here's Michael. Velocit, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Hi, Mike. How are you going? I'm very well today, and I've been looking forward to to our interview. Can you kick us off, though, with uh, letting us know exactly who you are and what you do, Michael? Yep. So, uh, so I'm the director and founder of Strand Property Group, um, and we're a, a buyer's agency in Sydney um, and property um, investment advisory as well. Excellent. And we're going to dig very deep into how you got to that position and, and some of your methodologies for, for property investing. But uh, before we get too far into that, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? No, <laughs> so it was a uh, it's a good question. Um, interesting one. I, uh, I as growing up, I had a real fascination with anything aviation. Um, so you know, fighter jets, um, you know, commercial planes, all that kind of thing. So um, so yeah, that was a bit of a uh, a bit of a hobby uh, when I was younger. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think as you get older, you start to uh, put pictures up there of girls and things. But, uh, yeah, there's it was, it was, it was definitely planes to start it's with. It's a funny transition when it goes from planes to girls. You're, you're speaking my yeah. language. And, and you, you would have grown up with, what, the tornadoes, the Eurofighters, that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly, the tornadoes. And also um, kind of like the World War Two planes as well was always a bit of an interest. Yeah, right. um, you know, the Spitfire and Hurricane and those sort of things. Now, what about property how did you first get started in property and what was your first investment yeah well i mean property's kind of been in the blood um all my life i sort of grew up with it uh, my dad had a uh, building and construction business in the uk um so i'd spend many a weekends uh, with him uh, trudging around building sites and doing house inspections and things like that so uh, so it was always there um but uh, interestingly, when I came to go to university, I would ha- had this mind that I would do something to do with aviation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the path that I was going to go down was to do aeronautical engineering um, as a degree. But when it came to filling my application for the courses that I wanted to apply for, um, I suddenly had a change of mind and decided, well, I've been in property all my life. Um, I, I like the engineering side of things. I like the design side. So I ended up applying to do architectural engineering, uh, which was at Leeds University in the UK. Um, and that kind of led me uh, down the path of uh, yeah, staying in property, yeah, wow. I suppose. And I did want to ask you what's going on with the funny accent. It gives you sort of an, an, an air of superiority. I think you would have been a great airline pilot. Uh. I would have felt very sort of comfortable uh. and uh, everything's under control. So, so, uh, so where, where yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, did, you, did you come from, Michael? Yeah, well, the accent's a bit of a mix now because I've been in Australia for 13 years now. But uh, originally, it's a, it is a Yorkshire, West Yorkshire accent. Um, I grew up around Wakefield, which is not too far from Leeds. Um, and it, uh, people tell me, has softened over the years since being in Australia. So, uh, but you'll you'll never shake it's it off. Still dug in, um, <laughs> for for sure. Yeah. Now, um, 
Can you can you walk me through um, I guess that that process that led you through to to architectural engineering? So you obviously you decided to, to move from aeronautical. What what sort of what sort of happened while you were studying? Was that something that you you could see that you were going to be employed in? Where did you get to um, you know on on that path to the next sort of corporate position? Yeah, so as I say, I think it was in the blood. Um, I think because I'd grown up around my dad in um, in construction and on building sites, and he did a lot of design work as well. Um, and I think that was really a, a true passion, even though I was interested in in all things aeroplanes. Um, I think that true passion for property was was always there. And in the UK, I'd always had a dream of you know buying an old house, renovating it, and then renting it out. So I think you know from an investment. Um, perspective that was yeah. always there um, so having done um, a degree in uh, in architectural engineering it was a good mix of design but also the practical side as well of how you know how do you actually build um, you know buildings from houses right through to football stadiums um, and so it gave a real good background knowledge of that um, and then after graduation that led me to Australia um, so came over here, um, as a lot of people do, on a, yeah. a one-year visa uh, to work and travel. Uh, came over with my girlfriend at the time, who's obviously now my wife. Um, and, yeah, got settled into a, um, well, it was a three-month contract initially with a large uh, developer in a design role. And then that turned into a, a permanent role. Um, which led me into 10 years in the corporate world uh, working in um, so you're architectural working for a design. Big, uh, construction company um, and, and, and in a, obviously a large organization. Mm, yes, so yeah, developer, um, investor, uh, landholder, um, yeah, big uh, sort of global. Um, Commercial industrial and the, business. I guess the architectural, construction, engineering. There's a fairly sort of highly paid job. So you obviously you'd, you'd landed that comfy job. Um, how did that sort of help you with getting your property investing going? I'm I'm guessing that um, that the cash flow enabled you to to start building a portfolio. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, just having that job security there and, uh, and my wife working as well, we, um, and I think, you know, coming with Australia with, with not a lot of things, we, we kind of started from a low base and, um, and saved our way, um, you know, up a deposit um, as quickly as we could. I think we always wanted to buy property when we were back in the UK and that didn't change having been here. Um, so as soon as we got permanent residency in um, 2009, 2010, um, we, yeah, used our serviceability then and the deposit that we had to to buy our first place um so we got into that as, as soon as we could and and then that led us down the path of, of buying more properties but uh yeah there was a real sort of desire there to get our yep. first property and where did that come possible. from do you think did you have the notion that that was a good way to to create wealth or was it just something that you you'd had stuck in your mind was a, was a good idea for whatever reason yeah, I think, um, you know, having grown up in property and seeing other people achieve things uh, with property, either buying it, renovating it, holding it, selling it, um, you know, I'd been exposed yep. to that from a young age. Um, my parents had bought a couple of properties previously and, you know, we'd done renovations on them and then rented them out for a while and um, unfortunately they sold them, they didn't hold on to them for the long term, but um yeah, I think that was uh, that was always a uh, an inspiration 
um, and that was was in the so, blood to, so, to do something. So, what was this um, first property? What, what what did you buy, and 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 what was the reason why you selected it? Uh, the first one we got was a uh, was a two bedroom apartment yep. that we lived in ourselves, um, just outside of Manly in Sydney. And um, yeah, the choice for it, uh, we'd we'd been renting in around Mossman um, previous to that, and you know Mossman as a market is is pretty expensive. So we uh, we knew we couldn't buy into that market. I think we might have got a, a studio, a one bedroom at the time. Um, so we went a little bit further afield um, to be able to get more space for our money, which you know most people do. Um, and um, yeah, it was just a good solid property. It wasn't brand new. It wasn't too old. Um, and we, you know, we did renovations to it yep. as we uh, and, as we uh, lived there. I guess once you once you've done that, you 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 launched onto the next one. How, how how long was it between purchasing that first property and moving into the next investment? Yeah, so um, so the first true investment came um, yeah. about eighteen months later. Um, after that, so again, we'd uh, continued to save pretty hard, and um, I think that desire to buy, you know, an investment property to 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 start to build that portfolio was there. So we, we actually ended up buying in the in the same suburb um, purely because we wanted a renovation project that we could handle from close proximity. Um, ended up buying something that was cheap than ours it was it was older it was in a really bad condition internally uh, but solid apartment building and then spent four weeks uh, renovating it yep. um, ourselves and then and then got that and, uh, and rented that out of, pretty quickly um, buy renovate and hold strategy is is something that i know that you you've written quite a lot about you're you're an advocate about was was that was that something that you were looking mm. for um perpetually as you're sort of building the portfolio was that a bit of a strategy or you were just sort of cherry picking those right ones along the way to try and execute on that yeah, I mean, the first two um, properties we bought, so that one and then the one after, were definitely a, a buy, renovate and hold strategy. Um, I think we knew we could build some equity into them um, relatively quickly by doing that. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's a good strategy for people, um, especially in the first or second um, investment, to kind of get the wheels turning a bit quicker. Um, so that was definitely a core strategy for that. Um, the, the next properties that came along uh, were more of um, just a pure buy and hold yep. um, for a bit more cash flow uh, to help balance the, the portfolio out. But but certainly it was a, it was an intentional strategy to to get a renovation. So you, you came to, to a, a point with the corporate gig where you were stuffed to the gills with your caviar niblets. You had your champagne coming out your ears, um, and you decided to, to jump into the trenches and be a, a buyer's agent. Have I have I got that sort of that uh, thought process fairly accurate? Yeah, no, absolutely. There was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, cushy times uh, in during the uh, corporate world for sure. I'm not sure about caviar, but um, there was there was certainly a bit of champagne, and um, and yeah, it was it was a big leap of faith to to leave that um, comfort, I suppose, and, and go out and start a business. But um, essentially, that that passion yeah. was there to help people. Um, we'd, you know, created success ourselves uh, with our own portfolio, started to help friends and family down a similar path. Um, and so it was really a, a natural progression to, to jump out and start to help more and more people do it. 
Um, yeah, and, and I'm making light of it, of course, but it's it's a it's a scary thing, right? You're in a comfortable position. There's no, I guess, there's no real need to move. You could coast along, okay, build the property and still get to where you're going. Um, chances are you're you're taking mm. a pay cut. You're taking on more risk. Um, how many people do you think are in that sort of similar position where they have a nice, comfortable job, but they're passionate about something else? And 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 what what does sort of moving into being a buyer's agent what what does that meant to you? Yeah, I reckon there's probably a lot of people out there that work in a job really for the for the security or for the regular pay, but they don't necessarily enjoy it. Um, and I think yeah, more people probably should take a leap of faith and really follow something that they're passionate about. Um, I mean, one of my biggest inspirations, and, and you know him well, is, is Pete Wargent. Um, he went down a similar path, uh, left a corporate world and followed his passion. Um, and really, that was, was the inspiration for me to do a, a similar thing. And, you know, in his books, he talks about you know, finding your passion and and creating a business around that, whether it's on the side or or you jump into it a hundred percent. But um, there's great opportunity out there for people to do it. Um, and for me, that you know, naturally the business was uh, buyer's agency, but also investment advisory as well. So sitting down with people and and helping them um, make a plan. Um, to invest into property and then with the buyer's agency actually help people um, carry that out and, and, and implement that it. You're, you're still still passionate about and making a big difference in. I, I want to talk about the properties. Um, y- your experience on site and obviously growing up with your old man and your degree should give you a pretty good insight into the actual asset that we're buying as a, a property investor. How, how is that process? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's given me a, a really sort of wealth of um, knowledge over the years, um, being there um, on site, knowing how buildings go together. And um, and yeah, and obviously use that as a benefit now in, in my work, my business. So helping people understand the pros and cons with different properties. Um, and it gives me, a, I suppose, a different pair of eyes when I do walk into somewhere to identify issues immediately that might not be apparent to um, you know the average yeah. um, buyer, and um, and certainly use and that, that as, a, as an that advantage. We see a lot as as quantity surveyors going in with that forensic eye to see if there's been any improvements to the property, which can make a huge difference to the cash flow. I remember hearing a, a story about you poking your head into the ceiling and and uncovering what might have been necessarily um, works that someone else wouldn't have found but are worth quite a bit can you tell us that story yeah yeah so um i mean i'm quite uh, diligent when i do my um property inspections and um yeah if i have the opportunity to get my head under the floor or get it up into the ceiling space um i certainly do that um i don't think many buyers do i uh, wrote recently on it that you know most people spend 10 or 15 minutes in a property and then decide to buy it um, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't go to the extent of getting a build and pest report done. Um, and, you know, for $600, it could be a huge difference between buying something that's okay and buying something that needs 20, 30, 50 grand's worth that's of ma- repairs. That's really madness, it. isn't it? And, I mean, you um, hear some people saying, I, I get a, a market valuation yes. done with every acquisition. There's merit in that. But some people decide, look, I, I'm confident with it. Um, I might let that go. But a pest and building report, that's a completely mm. different sort of thing, right? Like, why, why is that happening? Why, why are people wanting to save, you know, $300 per report or thereabouts? Yeah, I think um, some people maybe just have a mentality that, um, you know, 
you know, what's the worst that can happen? We'll fix it up. Um, or they just don't understand um, the true uh, risks that are um, out there with properties. Um, I, uh, you know, I repeat a statistic that about a third of uh, freestanding houses in Australia have had some sort of termite activity um, in the past. And with termites, you can't often see it. Uh, to the naked eye and if you buy a property you've not a pest inspection done and a few months down the uh, down the track the the roof starts to cave in because there's termites in the in the roof timbers it's a huge um, job to fix but um, the other side to it I think people um, have this loss aversion when they're searching for properties so they don't want to keep spending five hundred dollars six hundred dollars on a report um, especially if they're you know, shortlisting five or six properties, or they keep missing out, so they think, "Oh, we'll just save that money." Yeah, and I, I guess that, that is a point. If you if you if you're looking at properties and you're going down that process of getting the pest and building, uh, and you're missing out, especially in hot markets, like I'm assuming that would have happened in in Sydney a lot. I guess people do get to the point where they're thinking, mm. "I've spent you know a couple of thousand dollars on pest reports. Like I've just sort of I've reached my maximum." Mm. What's your advice in that situation? Do we just have to sort of suck it up and, and keep going because the risks are too great absolutely i think you've um, you've just got to get it done every time um, unless you've got someone who's helping you um like an experienced or qualified buyer's agent who can maybe uh, dismiss um properties before you then have to commit to getting a yeah. building and pest report um but for you know your average buyer um who's not got that experience um really shouldn't take on the risk of, of not getting one um, especially with older houses um, and also with brand new um, or nearly new apartments too, we, we hear lots of stories of, of defects uh, coming to light, you know, 12 months, 24 months in um, with, with newer properties too. Um, so for me, you know, that's that's one of my points of difference is I can um, shortlist properties um, based on, you know, my opinion of the condition of it before then the client has to commit to, of course, to pay the... for a building and pest we're talking types of properties themselves rather than the condition. You mentioned a strategy of, of looking for, for properties where you can add equity through renovation and then, then hold them for the long term. Is there a particular mm. type of property that you, you look for, you covet more than others, or, or does that really depend on how it's fitting in with your portfolio or your, or your clients? Like You might get to a point where cash flow is important or, or do you look mm. at, is it the property fundamentals first? Yeah, for me, it's uh, when working with a, a client, especially from the advice perspective, it, it certainly starts with them. Um, you know, what's their situation? What's their long-term plan? And how does property investment fit into that? Um, and then ascertaining which property type, which price points and locations is, is suitable. But once you start to then drill down to that, there's certainly uh, some properties which are, are more favourable. Um, you know, people talk about... Um, you know, building an asset base of, of land, um, owning the land, that's the thing that goes up um, over, you know, over time in value. Um, but it's not always about getting as much land as possible. Um, it's more about the land value. Um, so if you take Sydney, for example, you know, 100 square metres, um, you know, 5Ks out from the CBD is worth a lot more than 500 square metres, 50Ks out, yep. for example. Um, so it's certainly about getting um, good uh, land value first and foremost. So that might be um, with a house, with a semi, um, a townhouse. Um, and if 
you know, the price point uh, for that particular client means they can only um, buy an apartment, then you're looking at an apartment that's in a smaller block. It's not in one of these big towers of, you know, more than 50, um, 100 apartments. Um, so it's been quite selective about that. And it really comes back to scarcity value, um, buying something that there's not, you know, 100, 200, 300, exactly the same. That's um, that's really one of my philosophies. So, looking at the land value, so if we're, we're thinking, you know, land goes up, the buildings depreciate, that, that makes me kind of think, let's get the biggest block that we can because that's, you know, more of that asset that's going up. As you mentioned, that's not necessarily the most sensible approach. It's 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 the rate that it's going up, obviously, if mm. it's closer to the city. But but what about strata? I mean, you, you might not necessarily own the land yourself, but you're owning and and an airspace that uh, that mm-hmm. someone can occupy so you do have some real estate there and you would own a share of the the common parcel of land it, it, do, do we need to necessarily look at houses or, or or semis to be following that approach of, of buying for the land value no no so uh, as i touched on before i think there's certainly um, a good strategy um, for some clients to to look at units um, and again it comes back to um, buying a unit that is in a smaller block um, because um, it comes back to that um, ratio of what you own. So obviously under Strata, as you say, you own a percentage. Um, so if you're one of four apartments, obviously you own a quarter of the land. Uh, but if you're one of 100 apartments, you own 1% of that land. Um, and so obviously the bigger the building um, or the development, the strata complex, you know, the less land um, underneath that you actually have an ownership of. Um, you know, and you might have a bigger apartment, but you might have a, a smaller land uh, component as part of that. So, um, no, I mean, units, we, we have a unit in our portfolio and, um yeah, it's certainly, uh, you know, a good good strategy for a lot of people. But you've just got to take into consideration um, that land content as part you, of that. You avoid the the larger unit blocks, say the fifty hundred, as you mentioned. Is is that? because of that mm. share of the land value or is it that in sort of concert with the scarcity i.e there could potentially be three or four units for sale or for rent in that block at any mm. particular time which are competition to to yourself yeah absolutely so it comes back first to that to that land content um then definitely the scarcity so if you own an apartment in you know an older four pack or six pack um, you've got more scarcity there as opposed to owning a unit in one of these newer development that's 100, 200, sometimes 400 um, apartments, all part of the same development. And if you're thinking about your um, the, the risk of holding that property um, into the future, um, it might be brand new, say, from day one, or even if you're, you're buying an established one, um, you get a tenant in there straight away if it's an investment. Um, but when it comes time for renewal, um, the more apartments in that complex or that surrounding area um, there are, the more competition you've got when you do come to yeah. advertise that property. And so from a risk perspective and, um, you know, value holding up or values growing, uh, you want less competition. Um, and it really comes back to that exactly. supply demand. Now, Michael, you have investment properties throughout multiple states in Australia. What led you to diversify in that way mm. was it a purposeful diversification strategy or was it really you chasing the green shoot markets or the fundamentals there 
Yeah, um, it did come down to diversification, uh, really, as, a, as an overarching principle. Um, so our first two, uh, well, three properties were in Sydney. Uh, we sold one and, and bought to, to upgrade. Um, so we still hold two of those in Sydney. Um, and, you know, we used the equity out of them to, to buy more properties. And so it was a, a diversification strategy to say, well, let's um, buy elsewhere. So we bought the next two up in, in Brisbane. Um, and again, it was a slightly different strategy. So as I touched on before, that was a purely buy and hold strategy, um, slightly better cash flow than what we were getting on our Sydney ones. Um, and that was at a time that we were um, you know, thinking of starting a family as well. So personal cash flow was important. And that's something that I help a lot of my clients understand as well as they go through different stages in life. You've got to be conscious of, um, you know, your household cash flow, the property cash flow, and, and whether you can actually hold on to these properties for the long term. Um, so there was certainly a conscious decision there to diversify across border, um, diversify in terms of strategy. And then again, when we bought the next two properties, uh, that was more of a buy, hold, and then develop down the track. So, in about six years' time, we'll knock those two houses down and, and build townhouses. Right. Um, so, then we've got a real sort of diversification in, in location, but also investment strategy as well. You, you mentioned cash flow, and I'm, I'm guessing that the average property investor might buy one, or we know they buy one, but let's say they buy one or two properties. I'm assuming that they would more likely to be houses, more likely to be negative geared. So, we're at least for the first mm. couple of years chipping into our interest to our pocket how is that a strategy that can work where doesn't it work and 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 if we're looking for looking to chase these cash flow properties can we find them in the beginning or do we have to sort of wait for that rent to to go up so it's covering those expenses i know i've just asked you probably four questions in one there <laughs> i'll try and try and cover it all off um yeah no it's um cash flow is is critical really at the there's different philosophies out there you know some people buy for capital growth, some people buy for yield. Um, my fundamental, my philosophy is that um, you should obviously buy for the, the long term. It's over the years that your compound growth of your capital values really starts to, to snowball. Um, but behind that, the actual cash flow of the property is, is critical to understand um, before you invest, um, but also as you hold these properties. Um, it's the cash flow that allows you to, to maintain the portfolio. Um, so there's you know, some philosophies out there that you should buy just for cash flow. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true um, because you could have a high yield in property, but if it's not going up in value, um, you're actually just treading water. Um, once you take inflation into account and, and obviously tax, um, you're actually not getting ahead. Uh, so really the fundamental should be to chase capital growth um, first and foremost, um, but at a cash flow that you can personally sustain. Um, so it's really finding a balance between the two. Um, and for us, that was critical as we were building our portfolio and um, that we balanced um, that out. And, and how do we source properties if we are looking for cash flow? Let's say we have a couple of negatively geared properties and we're, we're having some serviceability issues. We really need to be chasing the high yielding stuff. Is that a matter of we can mm -hmm. only really find that in commercial or we maybe go to, to regional areas? What, if you had a client that, that was in that situation, what, what would you recommend? 
Yeah, again, um, obviously come down to what they hold already and, and what their household um, situation is like. But generally, you're going to get a better yield uh, with, say, a house in a regional um, city. And that might be um, something an hour, an hour and a half out of a major city. So I'm not talking kind of middle of nowhere places like mining towns. Um, certainly try and avoid that um, now. But um, yeah, either a house in a regional city where you are getting a, a better yield, um, or it might be an apartment and, and generally a smaller apartment, um, kind of your one to two bedrooms as opposed to your three bedroom apartments will, will generally give you a better yield. Um, now, as, as you're acutely aware, that the changes in depreciation have, have obviously had a little bit of an impact on, I suppose, after-tax cash flow with um, investors that are bought after last year, um, whereas previous to that, if you had a lot of plant and um, equipment that you could uh, depreciate, that would certainly help with the cash flow. Um, so, again, moving forward, a, a good strategy might be to buy an older house where you can do um, a renovation um, and then start to depreciate um, a lot of that new stuff that you're putting in. Um, and, and really, it does come down to being able to hold the property for the short term, waiting for the rents to go up. Um, hopefully, your salary is, is going up along that time frame as well. And then that's when you start to see good cash flow coming through from your portfolio. It takes a bit of patience sometimes as well, right? <laughs> mm. It does. It's it's a, it's a long-term game, um, and it's really the people that do stay in for the long term that will see the benefits, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the track. I think if you're trying to make money overnight, that's very difficult to do that with, with residential I think the, the long-term sorts of things are, are like the veggies and the boom markets are the lollies, and you've got to have your veggies before you have your lollies. Um, sp speaking of exactly. these lollies... Um, <laughs> Well, are there any particular markets that you think will perform fairly well over the next two to three years? So, so avoiding any sort of boom and bust uh, marketing towns, as you mentioned, mm. are there any sort of markets that you think have, have got good fundamentals to drive growth where we sort of see Sydney maybe heading in the opposite direction? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's the, um, you know, it's a, it's a crystal ball question, but there's certainly, um, you know, really good potential, I think, for, for Brisbane to be a bit of a standout, um, I think, in the short to medium term. I think if you're taking a longer term view, you know, your Sydney, Melbourne are always going to be um, those higher performing markets, which is, you know, what we've seen over over the long term previously. Um, we're certainly getting the majority of um, international migration um, or migrants coming to those cities first. And I don't think that's going to change um, in the, certainly in, in the short term, but definitely the long term. But uh, now that Sydney and Melbourne have, have done their thing, I think there's a lot of uh, attention on Brisbane. And we're seeing that in the data now in terms of interstate migration. You've got people moving up to Brisbane. Um, you've got the economy approving there. And, um, and unemployment is, is certainly coming down. So um, if I was going to pick one market on its own, um, I think it would be would be Brisbane over the over the shorter term. But again, being careful about what you select there. Um, so not necessarily chasing new apartments uh, where they you know they're, they're slowing down in terms of the construction, but there might not be a limit to what they could build in the future. So again, if you could get a good quality house uh, within 
10 to 15 k's of Brisbane, I think that's um, that's quite a, a low risk uh, strategy. You're currently to getting a lot more for for your money than in Sydney as well. So hopefully there's there's plenty of opportunity. Well, absolutely, for yeah. What what is happening in Sydney at the moment? Um, I, I I'd like to probably ignore these um, 60 minutes style stories because I think we all agree that yeah, that's, yeah. that's absolute <laughs> garbage. But it's coming off off the boil. We're still. It depends on your time frame how negative we're talking. I mean, we've mm. gone. We've had a huge boom and we've had a backtrack. But uh, you know, if your time frame's wide enough, Sydney's still done remarkably well. But w- what what's happening on the ground, Michael? Mm. Well, it's certainly um, there's definitely markets within markets, and as a lot of people come to say, and, and the media and the stats usually only show one Sydney market in terms of what's going on, whether that's clearance rates or, or prices. Um, everyone sort of looks at an average. But on the ground, as I say, you've got hundreds of different markets across uh, Sydney. So if we just pick a few out, you've got units in Parramatta and South Sydney around sort of Zetland, um, Green Square, um, that are starting to see values really come off. Um, And you've got some people that have bought off the plan even two years ago in Parramatta and they're coming up to settlement now and they're really struggling to get finance on them because the valuation is coming in under uh, what they signed for two years ago. Um, So there's definitely um, risks in those markets. And again, that comes back to that supply-demand equation. If you've got a lot of apartments being built in one concentrated area, you've got you know, a lot more competition um, for a reduced demand. Um, And so that's always going to be a risk there. Whereas if you take another market, um, which is one of the areas that we kind of focus on around Manly and and the Northern Beaches, um, you've really got a limited amount of new dwellings being built there. Um, Manly as a council is now amalgamated with Warringah and Pitwater, which forms the, the Northern Beaches Council. Um, But the old Manly LGA um, had the lowest amount of building supply across the whole of Sydney um, last year. And so you've got, you know, virtually no supply of new dwellings, um, even apartments, and you've still got an increase in demand of people that want to live there, want to rent there. And um, and we've seen prices in Manly actually go up over the last 12 months. Um, so Sydney's come back, say, 5.6%. Manly went up 9% wow. last year. Um, so as I said, there's, there's markets within markets, and it's, um, yeah, being careful where you buy. Um, but again, the, the needle moves very quickly over a short period of time. But if you're taking a longer-term horizon, I think sticking to the good areas uh, that's close to transport, amenities, lifestyle factors, and buying something with scarcity value, you're really de-risking um, your strategy, even in you know what is a cooling market within advice. Sydney. And and Manly, you know, mm. now that you mentioned it, you don't. You, it's not famous for a skyline full of cranes, is it? But and it's also a very desirable place to live. Absolutely, and um, you know some people um, have a preference of Manly over Bondi, but um, you know Manly is kind of one of those uh, places where you can get the ferry back to Circular Quay, so you've got that uh, commuter transport link as well, um, and it is yeah pretty laid back. Um, place you, you do get a lot of you know tourists coming through but the areas around manly are, are really desirable places to live just getting back uh, to I guess the, the the main market that the the media 
talks about Sydney as a whole. Do you, do you think it came? It, it's really come off the boil just mm. because it was time. It's had its run, or, or do you think that the, the the influence has really been from the lending environment with with APRA making the changes to investment only and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's multiple things that have um, have had an effect. Uh, there's certainly that affordability um, barrier that comes into play. So, you know, even before the APRA changes came in, there's only a certain level that people can borrow on a certain income. Um, and we've seen really low wages growth um, over the years, um, even though, you know, the last five to 10 years. And so if people's salaries are not going up, but property prices are going up, you start to get that affordability ceiling. So that has an impact on what people can actually buy. Um, then you've had the banks come through and, and restrict, you know, interest-only lending, um, reduce the serviceability, and um, and all of those things, I think, have contributed uh, to a cooling of the market. And as you know, property uh, markets do go through cycles and Sydney's had a really good run for four years and I think as um, I think as CoreLogic said you know it was the cooling yeah, yeah. that uh, that had to happen um, and uh, you know just give give it a breather uh, let things calm down and hopefully with unemployment now at, at, at an all-time low you're going to yeah. see wages graph start to kick in um, then people even if they've um, serviceability restrictions don't change at least their incomes are going up. So then and they can I, and start I think to it's, borrow it's a little bit more It's still going to be again. a problem with, with Sydney, with the serviceability and just the cost of investing in, in Sydney. How, how can investors make some good acquisitions at the moment given this environment where we're in, where it is a little bit harder to, to borrow more? Uh, what, what, what's your advice for, for, for people that still want to invest and, and is it a good time to invest? Again, comes down to personal circumstances. So you might have clients who, you know, they want to buy for the long term. They want to buy a good quality asset in Sydney, and and that's where we we're still helping clients with that. Um, it's it's not for everybody, um, but if their cash flow is strong and they are buying for that fifteen um, year horizon as a minimum, you know, it's there's still opportunities out there, and especially in a cooling market, we're we're seeing even really good opportunities come up where prices are, you know. Slightly down on, on where they were last year, and you've got less buyer demand. Um, again, if someone was looking to follow a buy, renovate, and hold strategy, um, that's certainly where we're seeing some opportunities too. So, if you buy something that might not appeal to everybody now, but do a bit of a renovation on it, um, hopefully building some equity into it straight away, but also getting a better rental return on it. Um, and that's another thing I think we'll start to see in Sydney over the next two years is we've had a bit of a dip in in rents, um, especially over winter because it's obviously always seasonal. But you tend to find that as you get really strong price growth, your rental growth um, falls away. And then the reverse happens when your prices start to cool or stagnate. Um, you've got less investors in the market and then you've still got a demand from renters uh, with less rental stock out there. And so we might start to see rental prices um, start to um, shoot back up. Um, and I think some of the data out there was saying that potentially in two years' time, we could even see, you know, a bit of a rental crisis again in Sydney, uh, where rents really start to shoot up. 
So then that's going to create, you know, an attraction for investors to come back into the market. Um, and things do go through cycles. But if you take a long-term horizon, there's always opportunity out there. Yeah, and rents have been flat for, for a long time. So it's, it's, it's bound to happen, especially with investors being less active in the market and the, and the mm. hamster keeps running along in the, in the wheel and we just decide when that's to right. sort of hop on and off, I guess. Um, exactly. Oh, exactly. I want to talk big picture uh, and financial freedom as a term I'm just going to mm. throw out there. Is, is that what's been driving your sort of personal journey? Do you look just more towards the first acquisition or is this overarching idea that you want to get to a point where the property is, is enough that it can sustain your life, lifestyle or your retirement? What, what, what is it for you, Michael? Mm, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, that financial security, that financial freedom was a big goal of ours. And um, we set out a plan uh, while, you know, I was still working in, in corporate world and buying our first investment that the first one would be the first of a portfolio of properties. Um, so we set out a strategy, a plan to, to carry that out. Now, admittedly, you know, lending uh, was a little bit easier when we were growing our portfolio. So, you know, as we sit right now, in the cycle, I'm not sure we'd be able to repeat what we did. Um, but that time will come again and, and people will be able to, to build bigger portfolios again. Um, but that is, yeah, the financial freedom is certainly a, a goal. Um, and we're certainly on that track to to get there, um, probably within the next ten years. And um, yeah, for us, it was it was certainly a long term goal to aim for when we're working full time in corporate world, and you have this notion of not wanting to do that until you're yeah. seventy. Um, is is creating a, a self sustaining portfolio that can provide a passive income so you can have the option not to work um interestingly that that goal is still there um, for me but it's probably uh, less important from a perspective of having to stop working um more about just having that financial security behind us because um, now i have a business and i'm helping other people with property there's something that i'll probably continue to do uh, for a long time, um, regardless of that, uh, that you know, passive. And whereabouts are, are you up to with your journey in terms of, of the portfolio as it stands at the moment and those goals? You, you mentioned mm. you've, I guess you've been doing it for around about 10 years. You think you've got another 10 years to go? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we, um, yeah, we're about three quarters of the way um, through. Um, so the idea was probably to get another two to four properties. Um, now, obviously, we're starting a business. Um, you know, that puts um, a bit of a break on that um, over the the next couple of years. But uh, but yeah, the the business should then start to help um, you know kickstart that uh, that growth again. Um, so for us, yeah, another two, three or four properties, depending when the opportunities come up, um, that would really round out the, the portfolio for us. Um, and as it stands at the moment, I think we would yeah, have good good financial security in about 10 years and, and probably a better position if we can acquire awesome. some Awesome. And let's, uh, let's give the business a kick in the pants right here, right now. Give us the pitch. What do you <laughs> do? How can people work with you? What makes you different? All that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I say, we're based in Sydney. Um, we're a buyer's agent on the, the lower North Shore and Northern Beaches um, of Sydney and, and helping um, investors that still want to invest into that market, uh, but also uh, home buyers now, um, so upgraders, um, some first-time buyers as well. 
Um, so we offer a full service buyer's agency and, you know, our point of difference is that we've got that design and construction experience so we can help people um, look at property from a different angle. And the other part of the business is the the advisory. So we'll sit down with clients and map out exactly where they're at now, uh, where they want to get to. And we'll put a uh, portfolio plan together or an investment plan. Um, and that might help them invest outside of Sydney as well. So, um, you know, Sydney is not for everybody. So we'll sit down and if there's opportunities for them to buy in Brisbane or regional Victoria, uh, we'll map that out for them um, and then work with professionals in those areas to, to help implement awesome. that. Um, so it's, um, yeah, both sides to it uh, is, is where we can help And how people. do people get in touch with you, Michael? Yeah, so you could go to our website, which is uh, strandpropertygroup.com.au. Um, we're on Facebook, and all our contact details are there on the on the Beautiful. website. Now, um, I just wanted to, to finish off, if we can, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to, to property investors, what do you think that would be? For me, um, as I touched on before, um, cash flow is, is really um, critical um, to understand where you are now, um, but also where you're heading. So getting someone, if you can do it yourself, or getting someone to, to help you understand that, really understand what is your household cash flow, what's your income, what's your expenses, and, uh, and, and what's happening with, you, with your property, and, and making sure that you can hold your portfolio for the long term. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people jump into property investment and, and don't do the maths behind it, and they get two or three years down the track and realize, why well, this is costing me more than I mm. thought it would, and maybe they didn't buy the right investment to start with. Um, and those are the people that bow out of the market and they never really get ahead. The key to invest in is to buy for the long term, um, to, to hold those properties and let time do its thing. Um, but obviously, you've got to be able to sustain it long enough uh, for it to, to have any benefit. So, so the one critical piece of advice is, is really just having that understanding of, of where you're at and, um, and how it applies to Beautiful. you personally. That's fantastic, Michael. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Thank you for having me on, Mike. And um, yeah, look forward to speaking again.